Good morning, church. My name's Aaron McNatt. I'm the lead pastor here at Wrightsville Assembly of God, and I am glad you're here. Man, is anybody else glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. Can anybody else testify, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus? Amen. And I love that song, that moment of worship together. Uh, I just wanted to stay right there, and I, and I would have, uh, except I've already had this service once this morning at 8.30, and I know what the Lord wants to do in the next 30 minutes, and so I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me, if you have them, to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We were there last weekend. This is going to be part two of a short little series I've called, So Far, So God. Somebody help me say it. So Far, So God. Last week, we looked at this incredible leader, Samuel, who has this pivotal moment here uh, with the nation of Israel. He is a, he's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a judge for the nation of Israel, and he's been raised up by God specifically to turn the heart of the nation back to the heart of the Father. And the key text that we looked at last weekend was right here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. It was verse 12. And so I want to start there again today. And this is what it says. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and he named it Ebenezer. You say, what is that? That's a, a word that means stone of help. And he made this declaration saying, and can y'all read this part with me? Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Last week, we, we unpacked the significance of the place of that stone, the purpose for which they set it there, and the proclamation that they made when they said, thus far, the Lord has helped us. Or in our common vernacular, we might just say, so far, so God. How many of you could testify that God's been faithful in your life? I mean, I, ho I hope you weren't lying when you said it just a moment ago. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good. It's true. So far, so God. He is faithful to us today. And so today, what I want to do is I want to look a little farther into the story because I want to look a little deeper specifically into the life of this leader that God used named Samuel. The next verse, verse 13, goes on to say, so the Philistines, that was the enemy, were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns of Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. These three verses just give us a synopsis of an incredible legacy of leadership in the life of Samuel. If you're trekking so far, and if you heard the message last week, you know that this moment began with an incredible spiritual revival, that, that Israel began to fast and pray and repent of sin and turn back to the heart of God. And then there was a supernatural uh, victory over their enemies. Even as they were worshiping at the altar that Samuel established, God began to bring confusion and chaos in the enemy's camp, giving them the upper hand for an incredible victory. But then it didn't stop there. Now we learn that, that God not only helped them to win that battle, but for the rest of Samuel's leadership, 
they always had protection from the Philistines. And the land that they had previously lost was restored. And God gave them peace around every side with the neighboring nations. Look at the next verse. Verse 15 says, Samuel continued as the leader all the days of his life. So not only did he lead great, he never stopped. All the rest of his life, Samuel led the nation as the leader. As we get to the end of the chapter, these next few verses are such a keen insight into his life and leadership. It says in verse 16, from year to year, he, Samuel, went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all of those places. So he was like a, a circuit rider judge, like we would have in early American days. He, he would go from one place to the next, bringing leadership and accountability and spiritual instruction to the people. But I want you to notice verse 17. This is such an important text today. It says, but he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Let me tell you why this is such an important verse. Because it says to us that not only did he lead the nation well, he led well at home. Can I just ask a probing question this morning? Are you leading well at home? I mean, I know we show up on Sunday and so many of you serve and, and you lead and, and, and we get that little snapshot of your spirituality and believe me, we think the most of you, but are you leading well at home? It doesn't matter how great your influence is or how successful you become, it's critical that you do what Samuel did here in verse 17, that you establish the altar at home. I spent 20 years doing youth ministry, and let me just testify to you. I've seen countless numbers, more than I'd like to admit, of teenagers that they were, they were involved. They went to camp with us in the summer. They went to convention in the fall. They were involved on, on ministry teams on the weekend. They, they did the discipleship track and all of those things. And then I watched those students graduate out of high school, and in the next breath, they graduate out of Jesus. I've seen them graduate from high school and the youth ministry and graduate right out of the church. And, and we look and we scratch our heads and we go, what could we have done differently? You know, should we, had, should we have had more prayer time at the altar? Should we have done more discipleship? Should we have had more game nights? Maybe they didn't eat enough pizza. I don't know what it was, but what could we have done? And the truth is, none of those things were the solution because none of those things pointed to the problem. The problem was those students had altar experiences every time they came to youth group. They never had a moment with God at home. We've got to build the altar at home. The thing I love about altars is altars are a place where you know you can meet with God. That, that's what I love about the altar. It, it's a time and a place where you know God is there. Earlier this week, I, I stood right here at this altar uh, with a couple in our church. They were in the first service this morning. Jeff and Kay Chaby uh, became members back in the spring, and Jeff had this idea rolling around in his mind. It came to me several weeks ago, and he said, I think it would be significant for us to renew our wedding vows uh, here at, at the altar in our new church home. 
And I said, man, I love that idea. Let's do it. So we, we put a plan together. And earlier this week, we stood right here. And they repeated the vows that they made several years ago when they got married. And, but they, they did it right here before God at this altar and this witness. And, and they said, we, we just want to be able to come into this church and recognize that like we have a covenant with one another and we have a covenant with God. It was established right there. Do you have places in your life where you can look back and go, it was right there. I did business with God. God showed himself faithful. Parents, your kids, when they get off the bus, when they walk down the street towards the house, it doesn't matter what kind of day they've had, when they put their hand on the doorknob, they ought to know I'm stepping into a place where I know God is. I can meet him there. Sadly, there are many that would say, I've never experienced the peace that I feel on Sunday morning in my own home. Samuel was a man who led well, but he also always went home, and he built an altar there unto the Lord. Our kids, our grandkids, they, they need to know, like, we, I, can, I can touch God. God's presence can touch my life, not just in the youth service or on a Sunday morning, but at home. I've been thinking a lot about leadership lately. Uh, as many of you know, last weekend was, was our 10th anniversary as pastors of this church. And so I've been thinking about leadership because of that a lot lately. Uh, recently, I was invited to, to speak to a group of pastors uh, coming up in just a few short weeks from now on the topic of church recalibration. So, so I'm, I'm going to be giving, giving some uh, insight, practical tips, some help for pastors that need to recalibrate their church to a place of health. So I've been thinking a lot about leadership. And let me tell you the pattern I see in scripture uh, when it comes to God wanting to do something. Most often when God wants to do something in the earth, he taps a leader on the shoulder and he gives them a vision. A vision is just a picture of a preferred future. I got to be honest, as a leader in the church, I, don't, I wish sometimes God didn't do it that way. I mean, it would be so much easier if God would just, you know, maybe go back and do what he did in Daniel's day and write it on the wall with his finger. That way everybody's like, see, that's what he said. You see it, I see it. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Thus saith the Lord. Like, but I mean, wouldn't it have been so much easier if God had like ignited a thousand burning bushes across the, the, the desert lands of Egypt and, and all the Israelites could have seen it and known the plan of God, but that's not what happened. He showed up to one man on the backside of a wilderness and he gave Moses a picture of a preferred future and then he called him to lead the people. But here's what we see God do because that, that's intimidating, that's, that's challenging. In fact, when you read through the, the story of leaders in the Bible, often what we find is the moment they're called, the next moment they're making excuses. Like when God called Moses right away, he's like, who am I, Lord? Who are you? And, and I, can, I don't speak well. What, what am I going to say? You know, when he came to Gideon, Gideon was like, I, I'm not from the right family. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably not your guy. When he came to uh, Peter, Peter said, depart from me because I'm sinful. And it's, it's, it's almost human nature for us to make excuses for why we're not the one. But every one of them and every one of us, when God calls us into leadership, he does two things. First of all, he promises his presence. He said, I'm with you. I'll be with you. The second thing he does is he promises the presence of people. In other words, I've called you to do this, and I've spoken to you about it, but I haven't called you to do it alone. You're not alone in this. 
for Moses, he said, I'll let Aaron be the spokesman. I'll bring her to hold up your hands. I'll bring Joshua to carry the final leg of the race. I'll bring the elders around you. To David, he said, I'm going to give you Jonathan, and I'm going to surround you with mighty men. To Elijah, he said in his moment of discouragement, there's a young man named Elisha. He wants to learn from you. It's his time. To Jesus, he gave the disciples to the Apostle Paul, he gave Timothy and Barnabas and, and Titus and Luke and so many others. God blesses leaders with his presence and then with the presence of others. Today, what I want to do is I want us to go into the next chapter of 1 Samuel. I want us to look in chapter 8 at the leadership of Samuel and I want to say to you, no, no matter where you lead, whether you lead a business or whether you lead a ministry or whether you lead a, a team uh, or a book club, I don't know, you know, you, you lead in your own family, whatever you might lead, I want you to know this leadership principle is applicable to every one of us at every stage of leadership. And here's what blows my mind. I don't hear anybody talking about what I'm about to talk about. Maybe the most significant leadership principle out there and no one's talking about it. I want to talk about followership. Followership. You say, is that a word? It is now. <laughs> good leadership demands good followership or it won't be effective. I heard someone say one time, if you are leading and no one's following, you're just taking a walk. I've been on a few walks before. I was like, let's do this thing. And then I'm out here by myself going, I'm, I'm not a leader. I'm a hiker. <laughs> so I guess the reason they've asked me to speak to other pastors about church recalibration is because of the, the obvious evidence that they see here. In these last 10 years, this church has gone from 28 members to breaking the 400 barrier in attendance. And so I've been envisioning what I wanna say to those leaders and how I wanna encourage them. And, and there's kind of a sobering reality that sits beneath the surface that I've been wrestling with. And it's this, that not for all of them, but for some of them, nothing that I say will actually help them. Like there's this reality that for some of them, Nothing that I can say to them will help correct the problem because the problem is not their leadership. The problem is followership. When I tell the story about this church, the thing that I often make the most of is the fact that when I came and I cast a vision, this church ran with it. That's the real testimony. Not me or anything that we did. The real testimony is that there was a core group of people that had been faithful in the trying seasons and they had been through a tough season as a church and yes, the numbers were down and yes, the finances were down and yes, the building needed you know, to be updated and things. But the moment they heard the vision, they grabbed it and they ran with it. Here's what I know. There are more talented pastors than me, better preachers, better administrators that could probably get up and give a better presentation, but they're not. I am because they have good leadership. They just don't have good followership. Thank God for a church that's willing to catch the vision and run with it. Amen. Can I just applaud you right now? Amen. 
Tony Cook tells a story. He told it years ago. I read this. I thought, man, that's such a powerful and, and sad story about a pastor. I mean, this was a this was a like type A amazing leader. And he tells this story about his 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 pastoral experience. And I just thought, man, there's so many that could relate to this. Uh, the, the pastor, he actually led a mega church. It was he had started, he built it from the ground up. This mega church, uh, it was a spirit-filled church. His son was uh, the associate that helped him uh, start the church and uh, just this awesome church. But then one day they ran into issues. Uh, one of the staff members uh, just was causing problems. The pastor had to let him go. The guy should have just left, but you know, when people lack integrity, uh, he, he, tried to, he, he tried to take people with him and you know, took a third of the church. And it was, a, it was a, a messed up deal, but he took them. They went down and they started another church in another area. After that, the, they kind of went through a season of healing, and after some time, the pastor decided, you know, we're going to parent a church plant. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to start another work. So they, they had this young couple that they sent out into a rural community. Uh, the pastor walked with them. He mentored them. Uh, he, he counseled them. He encouraged them. He helped them to learn how to lead and how to serve well. Uh, but after a little while, some of his former church members came over and started, started getting involved in the new rural church plant, and uh, they, they influenced that young couple, and they actually turned their backs on their pastor and their mentor, and so he, he had to remove them from their position of leadership. They closed the doors on the little rural church, never opened it up again. Sometime later, uh, the pastor, he's like, we're going to try this again. We really feel called to establish a work. And his son had been with him for a long, long time. And so he decided uh, to send his son to, to do a new church plant. So in a new community, they, they put together a little launch team, got about a, a, a dozen team members. And they were like, we're going to go. We're going to launch this church. And, and this time, it worked. In fact, it was going Great. Within about three years, they were at capacity crowds. Uh, they were seeing amazing moves of God. But it was right about that time that the, the pastor's son, now the pastor of the church plant, he starts dealing with issues in the leadership team. Some of his staff members, they started jockeying for position. They, they were fighting over, you know, who's in charge of this, who's in charge of that. They found out that the, the secretary treasurer was actually embezzling funds straight out of the ministry. John Maxwell says everything rises and falls on leadership. And the truth is, there's a lot of truth to that. You can go to Barnes & Noble right now and you can find a whole section of books on leadership. You can take college classes on leadership. You can get a degree in leadership in all of those things. But let me ask you a question. When's the last time you read a book on followership? Like, when's the last time you found that section in the bookstore? Good leadership demands good followership to be effective. And by the way, there's no perfect leader, right? Or is it right? I mean, is, is there a... Per can, I, can I just say, God is a perfect leader. Jesus... It, it, Jesus is a perfect leader. So if they're the perfect leader, can I just invite you to consider the story that I told just a moment ago one more time? I told you about this mega church pastor who started a work with his son. His son's name was Jesus. It was a spirit-filled church. 
I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven. And God launched this church, but he had this staff member, his name was Lucifer, who lacked integrity, and he had to let him go, but when he went, he split the church and took a third of them with him. And after they had a chance to heal and recover, the, the, the pastor, God, decided, I'm gonna start a new church, and, church. and so, so he, he raised up a young couple named Adam and Eve and planted them in a rural community called the Garden of Eden. But after some time, some of his former church members, the one-third of the angels that had been kicked out of heaven, came and influenced them, and they turned their back on their mentor and their pastor. And so God had to shut down that work. He closed access to Eden, and it was never opened again. And then I told you that sometime later, he wanted to plant a church again, and so he sent his son, Jesus, to start a work, gave him a little church plant launch team, about 12 And they went out and they started this new church. And it was going great and there was capacity crowds for about three years. But then there was strife on the team, right? They started arguing with each other, who's the greatest? Who's gonna sit on his right and on his left in his kingdom? And then they discovered that the financial treasurer, Judas, had been embezzling funds from the ministry. See, if, if God is perfect and Jesus is perfect, and they still had leadership problems. Can I tell you again, good leadership demands good followership for it to be effective. As we look at chapter eight of 1 Samuel, the reality is the prophet Samuel, the priest, the judge, the one who brought peace and revival and restoration for all of his life, in chapter 8, he can't lead Israel anymore. And the reason he can't lead them is simply because they won't follow him. Look at verse 1. It says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and they accepted bribes and they perverted justice. So Samuel's sons stopped following him. They're old enough to make their own decisions. They're old enough now to make their own choices. They knew right from wrong and they chose for themselves. And here's the thing. We have no indication in scripture that Samuel was not a good father. In fact, we, we see the opposite to be the case. We see him to be faithful and to be devoted. Samuel, when he was a boy, he grew up in the home of Eli, the high priest. And Eli's older sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they did not honor God. In fact, in chapter 2, God says uh, that he's going to judge Eli and his house. And the judgment that he puts on Eli is this. In verse 29 of chapter 2, he asks Eli this question. God says, why do you honor your sons more than me? That was the indictment of, of poor parental leadership. God says, why are you honoring them more than you're honoring me? And can I just say to all, all the parents in the room, and, and I is one, so all of us, all right, if you, if you make decisions 
that are swayed more by your child's opinion of you than what God has clearly communicated in his word, friends, that's called idolatry. You're saying, I'm gonna be led by by your opinion of me more than God's opinion of me. And that was the indictment against Eli. God said, why do you honor your kids more than you honor me? And it's a, tough, it's a tough hill to sled up, but I'm telling you, sometimes we have to make that very decision. We have to decide between what our kids, you know, they, they want to do, they're begging, they're crying, they really want this, but, but we made a commitment as a family. We're going to do this. Who are we going to honor? You know, when the schedule conflicts with the priorities of, of, of church, who, who are we going to honor? And God said, why, why do you honor them more than you honor me? Can I just tell all of us today, the most loving thing that you can do for your kids is love and honor God more than them. You, you think you're loving them well by, by, by shirking your responsibilities to God? No, no, no. The most loving thing you can do for them is prioritize the honor of God in your house. And let me go a step farther. For all of the married couples, the most loving and best thing, the greatest way you can bless your spouse is to serve and honor God, first and foremost in your life. We can do everything we can to raise our kids to love and know the Lord, but ultimately, the decision's theirs. And so let me just say, if you're hearing this message and you, you've already, your child rearing days are over and you're like, man, I did my best. I had my kids at church. You know, we did Bible studies together and they're not serving the Lord. Can I just encourage you today? Don't allow the devil to make you his parental punching bag this morning. All right, because God has no grandchildren and as much as you might want to, you are not their savior. They have to decide for themselves. And Joel and Abijah, it's very clear, they did not, walk in the ways of their dad. Not only did they not follow Samuel anymore, the people wouldn't follow Samuel anymore. Look at the next verse. Verse four says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, you are old. Don't you hate him already? Right? Like, don't, don't you love when people like just point out like the obvious to you and you're like, I appreciate your ministry. Yeah. <laughs> you're old and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us so that as all the other nations have. But when they said this, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. So here come the the people. He's led them incredibly for all these years. And they they start coming with excuses. Well, we think you're too old now and your sons sons aren't following you, so so why should we follow you? But God God intervenes and he reveals as Samuel prays. And maybe you've been in this place. You're going, I I don't know what to do. My kids are not listening. I I don't know what to do. This isn't working. Samuel prayed and the Lord reveals something to him in verse seven. And if that's you today, if that's your struggle and it's it's a heart pain Uh, for you because of people that haven't followed your best intentions, you probably need to highlight verse seven and just just receive the word of the Lord today because God spoke to him in verse seven. It says, the Lord told him, listen to all the people and what they're saying to you because it's not you they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king. 
So the Lord says to Samuel in that moment that their desire for a king is not an implication of your poor leadership. It's an indictment of their poor followership. It's not you. It's them. God's teaching me something through this that I need to be reminded of continually. As a representative of Jesus Christ, I can't take every rejection personally. And can I say to you, because it doesn't matter what your your occupation or your vocation or your station in life is, we live in a toxic culture that people want to just lash out in in, in mudslinging social media battles that rage every day on our feeds. Uh, Let me just say, not every rejection of you is about you. Don't take it so personally. I mean, if, if somebody's rejecting me, well, maybe then I need, to, I need to work on some things because as a, as a servant of the living God, we're called to build bridges to connect people to Jesus, not walls to keep them out, right? But I need to ask the question, are they rejecting me for me or are they rejecting Jesus in me? Are they rejecting me for my opinion or are they rejecting the unchanging truth of God's word that I'm sharing? Because if they're rejecting the word of God, you need to double back in your heart to verse seven and hear the word of the Lord again. It's not you they've rejected. It's me as their king. Some of you, your kids, maybe they're adults now and they're not listening to any of the things that you taught them. You weren't raised this way and they're going, yeah, but I saw this thing on YouTube and you know, we got new information now. And yeah, I know you say that's what the Bible says, but it actually doesn't mean that. And they're coming back with all this information. Mom, dad, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus as king. Stand in the truth of the word. Good leadership demands good followership. If people won't follow God, I don't expect they'll follow me. In fact, if they don't follow God and they are comfortable following me, I have another set of issues. Right? I don't have to try to make people feel uncomfortable. I just have to be like Jesus. The discomfort happens naturally. It's the gospel that people reject. The worst thing we could do if it's the gospel they're rejecting is is to, to cow down to that and to change our message, to honor them more than the word of God, lest God say to us what he said to Eli. Why why do you honor this generation? more than you honor me. In chapter chapter eight at the end of the chapter, you know, he goes on and he tries to tell the people, you're saying you want a king, trust me, you don't want a king. If you get a king, he's he's gonna impose taxes. If you get a king, he's gonna take the best of your crops uh, to put on his table. He's gonna make your your kids, uh, you know, take care of his palace and run in front of his chariot and holler his name and they're gonna take your sons and he's gonna put them on the front lines of his battle. You don't want a king. And they're like, we want a king. Verse 19, it comes to this. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Here's the deal. The issue was not their desire for a king. The real issue was their desire for independence from God. 
In fact, God already knew that they would ask for a king. Like way before they were even a nation with borders, God spoke about this. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when they were still a nomadic people, he said this, the Lord speaking here. When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you have taken possession of it and you've settled in it and you say to me, let us have a king over us like all the nations around us. See, God knows, he knows us. He knows our human desires, our proclivity to to sin and independence. And he says, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna give you a land. You're gonna be your own people. You're gonna plant your flag. And then you're gonna wanna set up your own government and you're gonna wanna turn your back on me. So when that happens, and it will, be sure, he says, to appoint over you the king that the Lord your God chooses. Now, the king that the Lord God would choose was David. David was a man after God's heart, but that's not the one they chose, is it? No, they chose King Saul because the Bible says Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel. Saul was a great warrior. Saul was a great communicator. On paper, Saul's your man. He looks good at the ballot. But that wasn't God's choice. God's choice was David. David was overlooked. In fact, when Samuel was looking for the next man of God, he shows up at David's house and he tells his father, hey, bring all your sons because God said one of them's gonna be anointed to be the king. And his Jesse, David's dad, didn't even invite David to the coronation. Like he didn't even, he didn't even consider, he's not even an option. Like just leave the kid out in the field with the sheep. I got some great looking boys over here that would probably do a good job following Saul as the next king of Israel. God told Samuel in that moment, a very powerful lesson. He said, Samuel, while man looks at the outside, God's looking at the heart. God doesn't see things the way you see him. And so his word is, hey, if if you're gonna choose, you're gonna choose a king. I know you will. But when you do, choose a king that I would choose. Here's what I want you to consider. Jesus changed the world with a two-word invitation. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. I know sometimes we, we get it we get it twisted what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And sometimes even even just the church language that we use uh, makes you know people get a, a misunderstanding, not intentionally, but uh, let me just clarify a couple things. Following Jesus doesn't doesn't mean uh, being a member of a church. Following Jesus doesn't mean filling out a next steps card. Following Jesus doesn't mean uh, answering an altar call and, and, and praying a prayer and saying, Jesus, uh, be the Lord of my life, come into my heart. All those things are good things. Those are great steps. But Jesus said this in Luke chapter nine, verse 23. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me daily. Can I just remind all of us today, our first calling is following. Before anything else, before you're called to be a leader, a husband, a wife, a a, a parent, a, a company owner, whatever, before all of that, the purpose and the plan of God for your life is that you would be a good follower. 
you would follow Jesus. And, and I just want to ask this question as we get ready to close. In fact, I want the worship team to come back. And in a moment, they're going to sing that song again. We sang it earlier. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. It's so sweet to take him at his word. That's what we're going to do today. Was we declare like Samuel, so far, so God. I'm going to take you at your word. But, but before we do that, I just want to challenge you to consider and, and search your heart for a moment. Look at, look at your life. Now, don't, don't, look at your, don't look at where you're sitting right now in this moment. We're all having this great Sunday morning spiritual experience together. But look at your life and ask the question, am I denying myself in any area to, to live in obedience and yielded surrender to the lordship of Jesus? Am I honoring God and his word above everything else? Or, or have I let the job take the lead? Have I let the, the, the family or the kids or, or the, the weekend getaways, have I let anything else take the lead? Would God perhaps say to me what he said to Eli? Why have you honored this above me? Are you following today? Because your first and highest calling is to follow. And if, if you're here today and you go, I, I gotta be honest and say like that's not, it's not what my life looks like right now. I wanna invite you in these closing moments to just simply pray a prayer of surrender, to not just sing the song, but from your heart to say, Jesus, I trust you. I take you at your word. I trust you with my life. I will follow you. Let me tell you what your second calling is. Your second calling is leadership. We're all called to follow but we're all called to lead. Leadership, synonymously, if we could just say, is influence. And God has given you influence in the world. Again, I, maybe, maybe you lead a ministry, maybe you own a company, maybe you have a family, maybe you're just part of a summer book club, but you have influence. God wants you to use that influence. So the second prayer that I want to encourage you today, first is just to say, God, I, I want to be a good follower. I want to follow Jesus. I want to take up my cross, deny myself, and follow him in humility and surrender. But the second prayer is, God, I, I, I want to be a leader. Let me tell you, church, friends, God is still tapping people on the shoulder and giving them a vision of a preferred future. It might be for your workplace, it might be for your marriage, it might be for your kids or for your grandkids, it might be for this community, but, but God will, will prick the heart of a follower and, 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 and allow something to touch their heart in a way that maybe it's never touched anyone before. And there's this sense that like something needs to be done. And I wanna challenge you to open your heart to the vision of God today, to say, God, would you give me a God-sized vision? Don't hold back. Say, God, I, I, want a, I want a big picture for my life. I don't want some small picture for my life. I don't want some safe plan for my life with, with lots of margin and room for error. I don't just want an American dream version of pursuit for my life. I want a vision from heaven for my life. I want to challenge you to ask the Lord, would you speak to me today? The Apostle Paul said this. He knew his assignment. He had a vision from God. He was called 
to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He knew his purpose. And he knew he was surrendered completely to the lordship of Jesus. He bowed down his whole life before the Lord on that Damascus road in Acts chapter 9. And so he could say this confidently, follow me as I follow Christ. So my last question is this, can you say that? Can you say that? Can you say it to your family? Can you say it to your friends? Hey, you can follow me as I follow Christ. Because if the people that are closest to you, whether it's in work or in your own home or just your friend group, if the people that are closest to you are not closer to Jesus because of you, then you need, you need to take a moment to evaluate your leadership, your influence. So I wanna invite you all over the room. Can we stand just to honor the presence of the Lord? They're gonna begin to sing this song and rather than calling people out specifically, here's what I wanna do. I know it's a full house this morning, but we, we very intentionally put the first row about 10 feet away. And I know some people think that's because nobody wants to get spit on by the preacher. But actually, that's not the reason. The real reason is because we want to make spaces and places where I know I can meet with God. That's what this altar is for. So I want to invite you today as they sing this song again. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. I want to invite you to step out from where you are and to find a place at this altar. Maybe to just stand with hands lifted high or maybe you want to kneel down. But I want to open these altars for a few moments and give you the opportunity to just say, Jesus, I, I want to follow you. I want to follow you with all of my heart's devotion. And Jesus, I want to be open to the Holy Spirit tapping me on the shoulder and giving me a vision of how to lead people to Jesus. So some of our prayer team is coming. I want you to...